you're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 77, 1 through 20. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your holy deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God... When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Please pray with me. Father, you are so good. Thank you for this time that we get to spend in worship set apart from the rest of our week. I ask that Brandon would be lifted up this morning and that he would be your vessel and that we would all have ears to hear and be able to focus on the message. I also ask that Central Middle School be lifted up and that you would encounter all those who spend their time here. And I just want to thank you for providing us Central Middle School as a place to worship you. In your name I pray. Amen. My name is Brandon Williams. I am the Director of Youth and Missions here at Free City Church, and I have a pleasure of bringing God's Word today. Um, If this is your first time with us, man, we're so thankful you're here. I've been diligently praying that you would feel welcomed, you would feel like there's something here that you've been missing. And if you are a constant attender of Free City, it's good to see you again. Um, If you're a student and you're finally back, we're so glad to see you. Um, uh, So today, as you've just heard, you've just seen, we're in Psalm 77. But before we get there, I want to talk about some statistics um, from Statistica. It was a study done by Amy Wilson. And so she surveyed over 3,000 Protestant evangelical Christians, i.e. us, people like us in this room, 
And so what she found out was that only 11% of Christians read their Bible every day. And then it actually goes down a step. Only 9% of Christians read their Bible several times a week. So that means, look around this room, 80% of people in this room are less likely to read their Bible than they are. And so that statistic becomes important when something like this passage comes up. Because what we see here is life is going to bring troubles. It's going to bring anxieties. It's going to bring fears. Life is going to bring these things. And we're called to have a biblical worldview to these things. But there's a danger in seeing and feeling these things than not being informed by the Scriptures. And so today, what I really, I'm going to ask you all to do something really hard. Two things. First thing, I'm going to ask you to participate. I know that can be really hard in church. You feel like you got to sit on your hands and you can't do anything. And then the second thing, I'm going to ask you to be real. I'm going to ask you to be honest. I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable. And so today we're going to look at three main points. We're going to look at the troubled soul. We're going to look at the search of the soul. And then we're going to see the resolution for the soul. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, just that we have a place to meet. Um, We have your word that we can go to. And God, I pray that what we would see when we walk out of here are not phrases. We would see that it is your word alive speaking to us and that we walk out of here changed and we walk out of here on mission. All for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so our first point, the troubled soul. This is going to kind of be who we are as people. So verses 1 through 3. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In, my, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And so first thing, the I here. The I here in Hebrew is a little different. Um, when I say I, I'm speaking about Brandon Williams. And you think like physical body. This like five, or we'll say six, two jacked guy. I know that's what y'all think about. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to sell myself short. But, um, but what this I here means, this is a, it's not just physical body. It's not just soul. It is where soul and body meet the full encompassing from the hairs on your head to the depths of your heart. Every thread of you is what this I is encompassing. So I cry aloud to God. Every inch, every fiber, all the way down to the double helix of my DNA is crying out to God. And so then we see in the day of trouble, and then we see in the night. So not only is every fiber of my being crying out, but it's crying out at every second of the day. This is crippling pain. This is anguish. This is anxiety. This is fear. This is someone who has nowhere to go, nothing to try, and all they've tried to do is cry out. And so also there's this like moaning, there's this pain, there's this physical aspect. If you've ever struggled with anxiety or panic, then you understand there's a physical aspect. So they're feeling this all the way to the depths of who they are. They are in anguish, they are crying out, they are troubled. And so what I wish I could tell you about this passage is that it's just for this psalmist. But if you've lived life long enough, you realize life brings 
situations and circumstances that trouble us to our core. Um, anxiety and fear is at astronomical highs. Well, we see we're scared to live, we're scared to die, we're scared to stay, we're scared to go. We're scared of everything. We're troubled by everything. And so then there are also circumstances like the fragility of life that leave us troubled. Disease and death are real, and it's something we will all face. That's troubling. And so just take a second to see this picture that's being painted. It's not just words. It's phrases coming together to paint a picture of troubled soul to the depths of who they are is just in fear, crying out. And so this psalm really hits for me. Um, so since January, January 1st, um, I have more stories about January 1st. It's not good for me. Um, but January 1st, for me, this past year was just a normal Sunday. Hannah and I went home. Um, Hannah's my wife. She's awesome. Shout out. Um, but Hannah and I went home. We got lunch. And then about 10 minutes after eating, and if you've never experienced this, it doesn't make sense, a wave literally came over me. And my throat felt like it was closing up. My heart was racing. I started sweating. And I didn't know what was happening. And I just got up and started pacing. And finally, Hannah was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I think I'm dying. And so, I kid you not, we went to the emergency room. Like, I thought I was literally having a heart attack. And so, we get there and the doctor does all these tests. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you think you had a panic attack and um man I remember going home and it took me a few days to actually realize that like hey it's okay you had a panic attack um but now my troubling comes with that same feeling comes up a lot when I eat which is hard because you eat and you need to eat um and so for me this troubling this crying out of God why don't you just take it away like, if, if you are who you say you are, then why can't you just fix this? And some of you feel that right now. You're in a situation that feels hopeless. You look around, and what you see is a bunch of people who look like they have it all together, and you feel alone. The walls are closing in. There's no escape. When I talked about the depths, the depths of this psalmist, the fiber of every being is troubled, you're like, that's me. You're in so much pain that you feel like God can't be close. He can't be watching. Because if he was watching, then there's no way he could leave you where you are. Maybe you have a family member who's incredibly sick. Maybe your child is battling a fight that you can't protect them from. Maybe you've prayed for a spouse for years and God just doesn't seem to hear. Maybe your job isn't what you thought. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe your anxiety is crippling your ability to function. And so this is where I'm going to ask you to participate and to be vulnerable and real. I want you to literally write down what is troubling you. If you need to get out your phone and type it, if you need to write it down, I've listed off some things. I believe everyone in here is being troubled by something because that's how this life is. We live in a lost, broken world. So I want to ask you to be real right here. And imagine this, you're being real before God. What's troubling you? Maybe a word or a sentence. I don't know if we have time for a paragraph. Um, but 
All right, so now that you have that, we're going to come back to that in a second. So now we have uh, point two, and this is the search of the soul. This is what we're scared to do. So verse four, we see, um, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. And I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then here, then my spirit made a diligent search. So what we need to see here is on the other side of trouble and anguish, what we're going to get to is it is natural that you're going to ask a question. That's natural. It is natural that when you realize you are troubled, that you're going to respond in a way that you ask a question. It's like when you go to the doctor and you say, my elbow hurts, and then they say some phrase you don't understand because it's medical terminology. And then you say, well, like, why does it hurt? It's natural that we overflow with a question. And so we need to realize that, that when we're looking at asking God questions, it's okay. Now, don't go Job and just like start accusing God and all these things. But it's natural to ask God questions. So let's look at the questions that we have here. So verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? And so this is that, the heart of this is, do you feel like God's looking down on you and there's no empathy? Like God sees what you're going through, he knows what you're going through, but he just doesn't care. You used to see God's hand at work, and now it feels like nothing is there. Your prayers just seem to go unanswered. And then you finally get to a place of, God, what did I do to make you go quiet? Then we see the next question. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I I struggled with this one because this one's interesting. Um, The psalmist acknowledges God's steadfast love, so it's this constant, never-ending love. But in the same breath, he says, has it forever ceased? And so when you're looking at this, man, if you're a legalistic or perfectionist person, this might just be your question. Because what this is saying is, God, if I stop performing, will you still love me? God, if I keep messing up, will you still care? If I show people how messed up I really am, what's going to stop them from leaving? And in the heart of the heart of the question, are my circumstances proof that not even God can love me? The next question, are his promises at an end for all time? So if you're highlighting the promises of God, what you're really trying to highlight here is the character of God. And so what he's saying here, the psalmist is saying is, um, are his promises at an end for all time? Has God stopped being who he said he was? And for us, it's easy to ask this question. Maybe God isn't who he says he is. Because if he was, then I wouldn't be feeling this. I wouldn't be asking these questions. If God just held up his end of the bargain, then we wouldn't have to hurt. Or maybe it's, I wouldn't still be single, or I wouldn't still be anxious. I wouldn't still feel alone. My kids wouldn't still be hurting. My parents wouldn't still be sick. My life wouldn't still be a mystery. I wouldn't still be angry. If God was just as good as he promised he was, then I wouldn't be here. If God was who he said he was, then my life would be better. The next question. 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Um, man, when I was going through this, this is the one that hit me the deepest, the hardest. Because at the core of it, what this question is asking, is, has God forgotten about me? If only I was a better Christian, a better husband, a better preacher, um, then God would remember me. If I was better, God would answer my prayers like he does everyone else's. Maybe you feel like if you didn't struggle with that sin, then maybe God would love you. Or maybe you just feel like God's given up on you because you're not good enough. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried to earn God's love, and all that's left you is sad, tired, and disappointed. Maybe you feel like if you'd have just been better, then you wouldn't feel so alone right now. And then we get to the last question. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This resonates with everyone. The heart of this is a fear of abandonment. This person is scared God has left them alone. Maybe God finally saw him for who he really was and he couldn't stay. He put it all on the table and God looked at him and said, you're too messy and walked away. God, have you in anger shut up your compassion This overflowing compassion has been dammed upstream by my sin. The flowing waters of God's compassion has left me. And so at the surface level, what this looks like is this person's accusing God. But what I want to argue is this person is accusing themselves. They're saying because of their sin, because of what they've done, it has caused God to leave them alone. And so there were some commentaries that brought up um, Exodus 34, verse 7. And that says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What I think this psalmist is trying to portray with these questions is they're acknowledging that God will not clear the guilty. And so if I am guilty, then that means what God's doing right now by abandoning me is just. I've finally messed up enough to where God has left me alone. And so the search of the soul is going to require you to be honest before, your, before God and ask your question. So a minute ago, I asked you to write down what was troubling you. And so now I just went through a lot of questions. And I want you to write down, what question do you have? You're not going to get to resolution if you don't get to asking your question. And so right now, I want you to ask your question. And what I caution you is, stay away from why. I feel like why questions are almost a defense mechanism to keep us arm distance from someone. Because at the heart of a why question, there's no answer that's going to be good enough. So right now, whatever is troubling you, ask your question before God.
so I know what you're thinking. Man, we're cruising. Man, this is going to be over in five minutes. Well, we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time here. Um, so buckle up. Um, and so point three, what we see is just on the other side of you admitting you're troubled, what's troubling you, bringing your question before God as we see painted in this psalm and presenting it to him, what we see is the resolution for the soul. And that is God's promise to us. So in verse 11, we'll pick up. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So the first resolution I want to talk about for the soul is remembering. So what are we to remember? What it says here is the deeds of the Lord and the wonders of old. Man, this is one of the beautiful things about the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't have to be scary. Because naturally in our life when we face troubled things, we're going to forget who God is. There's a reason we celebrate Christmas and Easter every year. It's because we need to stop, pause, and remind ourselves because we forget. So the scriptures, one of the ways that they help us is they remind us of who God is. We remember his deeds. We remember his wonders of old. When we look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is God constantly redeeming his people. We constantly think we can be our own God. We constantly think we can do it ourselves. And then at the end of the day, we fail time after time. And God's always been faithful. So the deeds of the Lord. Man, when you read the New Testament, do you stop and do you marvel at Jesus? Or do you just glance and keep going? Do you stop and think, man, Jesus raised people from the dead. He healed the sick. He would have sat across the table from a person like me. Do you stop in awestruck wonder and just glance upon the miraculous works of Jesus? Or do you just go by? When you are troubled and then now there's an overflow of your troubledness that you ask God a question. And now biblically what this psalm tells us is to pivot and focus on who God is. And this is where the statistics at the beginning are important. Christianity is going by the wayside because we have a biblical way to respond to trouble. But if we don't read the Bible, then we don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know how we're supposed to respond. What we see in the scriptures is that people mess up and God saves them. When we, the people of God, are lost, God brings us home. And so what this means is whatever is troubling your soul, Scripture reminds us that God has not forgotten us or left us alone. But we need help remembering that. Another way that we can remember the deeds of the Lord and the wonders of old is remember what God's done in your life. And if you are a guy, grab a random guy in here. If you're a girl, grab a random girl in here. Go get dinner, go get coffee, and ask them my favorite question. How did you get here? What you're going to see is the wonderful works of God unraveling in people's lives. And that's going to remind you, man, God is good. You also need to look at your life. Think about all the little moments in your life that are God divinely orchestrating who you are today. 
So the first resolution for the soul is remembering. Remember, go to the scriptures, think back on your life. See God's hand at work in your life and in the lives of others. And so the next resolution for the soul is redemption. And so if you notice here, there's a pivot after verse 12, and the author changes perspective. If you go from verse 1 to 12, what you see a lot of is eyes, mys, me's. He's focused on himself. He's focused on whatever is troubling him. That is the only thing that matters. And then we see a pivot here after he remembers God, and then it goes to you. It's no longer about what is troubling me. It's about the God who is in charge of what is troubling me. Remembering who God is opens the door for us to no longer get caught in our circumstances. We get caught up in who our God is. And then we see verses 13, 14, and 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph. So what does it mean that he redeemed his people? From Genesis, we see the first generation. We see Adam and Eve, and they are going to start something that man would replicate all through generations, and that is sin. That means that we see what God has asked us to do, and we disobey. We say what I want is more important than what God has for me. We showed our natural desires not to follow the commands of God. And the wages of this is clear in Scripture, for the wages of sin is death. No matter how much you're working, no matter how much you're trying to be better, no matter how many self-help books you read, you are not going to make up for the gap, the chasm between you and God by your sin. So that means we need a redeemer. We need to be redeemed. And this is when Jesus entered the scene thousands of years ago. And so, what, what do I mean by redemption? What do I mean by that? I mean, there's a debt that each one of us owe that we can't pay ourselves. We need someone else to pay on our behalf. And once that debt is paid, what that means is we're clean. What that means is there's no condemnation When we were doing the um, Kansas Juvenile Detention Center ministry, we had a kid ask this question, what does it mean to be condemned? And I was like, man, that's a great question. So we brainstormed it. And what we came up with, with is, imagine you're sitting across the table from your best friend, your mom, your dad, somebody. And you let out every bad thing you've ever thought, said, and did on the table. And you just say, at my core of who I am, this is who I am. And then imagine them looking at you standing up and saying, I can't believe you, and walking away. You would sit there condemned. Your actions brought a just response. So what is redemption? There's no condemnation. Imagine sitting across from Jesus, and you put it all out there. Everything about you, everything you thought, said, and did, and his response would just simply be, I know. I died for that. I'm still here. I haven't left. That's what it means that there's no condemnation. That is standing for Jesus, knowing that he paid the price. 
This also means that there's nothing that can separate God from his people. Not kingdoms, wars, destruction, not even what's troubling your soul. Not even that sin that you just can't seem to kick. Nothing and no one. And so if you know Exodus 34, um, then you know I skipped the best part. That was intentional. Um, um, And so we're coming back to verse 6. And so we saw in verse 7 that God will not clear the guilty. There's a price that has to be paid. It's not just God says, oh, I've forgiven you. It's time to go on, whatever. There's still a price that has to be paid. But verse 6 gives us more of the characteristics, the promise of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So how is God able to be that? Because verse 7, he by no means clears the guilty. He puts the guilt on Jesus. That is how he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we can know that's true because the wrath we deserve fell on Jesus. He pays our debt. That is the definition of God redeeming his people. And so another, I want to jump over to Isaiah 43. Um, This is another passage that I think just highlights what does it mean that God redeems his people. So Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he knows you. He who formed you, O Israel, there's nothing about you that he doesn't know, he doesn't see. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. How do I know you've redeemed me, God? I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. You're safe. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You're protected. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. There's nothing I won't pay for you. There's no cost too great for you. And then verse 4. Man, how do we know this? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And from the lips of God, he says, I love you. So the promises of Isaiah 43 is that you've been called by name. You are his. You are known. You will never be alone again. You won't be overwhelmed. You are protected. You have a savior. You are precious in the eyes of God. You are loved. He says, I love you. And so I firmly believe whatever question you wrote down, the answer is found in the truth that God redeemed you if you were in Christ Jesus. So when we look at the the questions of the psalm, will the Lord spurn forever? No, because I love you. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? No, because I love you. Are his promises at an end for all time? No, because I love you. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No, because I love you. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No, because I love you. And maybe some of these are the questions you wrote down. God, am I alone? 
know promises of Isaiah 43, you will never be alone. God, do you even see me? Yes, because you are precious in my eyes. God, will this anxiety overtake you? No, you are protected and you won't be overwhelmed. God, do you even care? God's response, child, I love you. God, do I have to be married to be worthy? No, I love you. God, do I have to be a mother to be valuable? No, I love you. Do I have to be that Christian, that person for you to love me? No, I love you. God, do I have to be perfect? No, I love you. God, am I enough? Yes, I love you. God, do I have value? Yes, I love you. God, have you forgotten about me? No, I love you. So all these promises that we have, that God loves us, that we're not alone, that we are redeemed, they are all fulfilled in Jesus. And so when we look at this, Jesus was alone so that we would not have to be alone. Jesus was overwhelmed so that we would not have to be overwhelmed. Jesus was not protected so that we would be protected. Jesus didn't have a Savior so that he could be our Savior. Jesus felt forsaken and forgotten so that we in in Christ Jesus would never have to feel forgotten or forsaken. Through his death, we are truly redeemed. And man, I really want to press this home right now. If God gave up his son for you, how could you ever think he would leave you? He won't. The price is too high. He paid too much for you. He paid too much to be in relation with you for him to ever leave you or forsake you. And so now we get to this overflow of, okay, God, I understand. I see that, that you love me, you've redeemed me, that I'm not who I used to be. And that overflow should change us. Jared Wilson talks about in his book, um, The Imperfect Disciple, he talks about duties become delights. So reading the Word, there's a reason 80% of Christians don't read the Word. They don't delight in it. They don't look and see, man, Jesus, God Himself speaks to me primarily through His Word. And when you don't see that, you're not going to read it. So if we believe the mighty works of God in our lives and in all of history, and He wrote a book, why wouldn't we read it? Why wouldn't we go to the Scriptures expecting to hear from God? It's a delight. And then the next prayer, man, prayer becomes a delight when we look at God and see, man, you paid your son for me. And you get to, like, I get to talk to you? Man, I'm, I'm delighted. In Matthew, we see, man, if a bad father can give good gifts, how much better of gifts can a good God father give? And these, these hearing from God and speaking to God become delights when we understand the depths of God's love for us, despite us. And then the last one, a, a, a duty that becomes delight is committing to the local church. Parents, um, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Your kids will never be more devoted to the local church than you are. If you are in and out of church... So will your kids. If you don't make church a priority, neither will your kids. 
if you love and value sports more than the church, so will your kids. I firmly believe in the five or so years of doing um, kids and youth ministry, if you want your kids to love Jesus, the best step is for you to love the church. Surround them in biblical community. Aunts, uncles, and cousins in the faith. Surround them with the reading of the word. Surround them in prayer. And this is where I get so passionate. Parents, don't assume your kids just know. Tell them why we go to church. Why you give money. Why you love Jesus. Don't assume they just know. And don't assume they ever will just know. Fight for your kids. Fight for them to love the church. Fight for them to love Jesus. And so for all my application people out there, if you're like, man, I need, give me an action point. My action point is believe that God loves you. Amen. So the, the last part of this we see, and this is probably the, the fastest point here, um, the resolution for the soul is a mighty God. Verses 16 through 20, and we see this. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. And so, man, what we see this right here. Um, it's kind of a miraculous. The psalmist has moved from this me focus. I'm scared. I'm troubled. I ask my question, then I pivot, and now I'm focusing on God. And now what we see, the overflow, is that he's just marveling at who God is. And so this is a, a Casey Maddox term, but sometimes you need to stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. And so what I mean by that is Sometimes you need to tell yourself who God is and stop listening to the enemy's lies tell you who God isn't. So if you want another application, look, two applications in like four minutes. Look at us. If you want another application, stop listening to lies and start listening to the scriptures. Because when we do that, we begin to see God for who he really is. And that is an overflow. We see how God responds to us. And then the next thing, man, when you look at this, the waters, the deep, the clouds, the skies, thunder, lightning, these are things that we view as uncontrollable. We as humans cannot control these things. But if you see here, the psalmist is painting this. It's almost like an orchestra working together to create a beautiful song with God in control. So that's not by accident. The psalmist is highlighting the controllability of God to control the uncontrollable now take that back to your trouble or your question. If you feel like, God, there's no way he could control it, that's what the psalmist is getting, giving to us here. If God can control these things, he can control even what is troubling the depths of your soul. And then probably the hardest part of being a Christian here is we see at the end of verse 19, yet your footprints were unseen. So you probably aren't going to see the movement of God right now in whatever's troubling you. 
there's, see, there's a problem with us when we are in the midst of the storm. We get so fixated and focused on the storm that we forget who is in control. This is why we need to look back on the mighty work of God in preservation and salvation of his people all throughout history up to now so that we can know in the midst of our trouble that we are protected by a God, a mighty God who is in control. So if you find yourself in a place where everything seems out of control, I'm just asking you to trust that there's a mighty God who is in control and that mighty God loves you. And then in verse 20, we see the truth of God. He leads us. Like a herd of cats with mayhem on our mind, he gently walks us down the path. And as we are stuck focusing on our fear and pain, he is focused on ensuring we are safe. One way to sum up the Bible is this story. A good, faithful, just God leading his lost and broken people from condemnation to justification to eventual glorification. He's leading us. And so as we close, what is the resolution for troubled souls? We have a mighty God who loves us. He is constantly working behind the scenes. This is if our God is for us. This life brings troubles, fears, anxiety, pain, and even death. A troubled soul will naturally respond with questions, often hard and scary questions. The promise of the scriptures is that God has the same answers to our questions. That he loves us and if he's redeemed us, he will not leave us for those of us in Christ Jesus. We can face any moment, question, or fear knowing that because of Jesus, God delights in us. And so one of the beautiful ways we remember this is each week we come and we partake in a meal. And so... Man, if you are struggling with, wonder, with the trusting the God of old, the wonderful works of God, man, I ask you, man, just stay seated during this time. What communion is for is for believers who are struggling with believing um, the promises and truth of God to come and partake in a communal meal, and there will be bread broken for you. And that symbolizes the, the broken body of Christ for you. And then there's wine and grape juice, and you can dip it in the, um, the wines and the stoneware, the grape juice and the glassware. And when you dip it in, it's to remind you of the blood of Christ shed for you. And so I ask you to, to partake and then take a seat for a moment and just simply remind yourself the truth. No matter what's troubling you, no matter what question you have, no matter what sin you're struggling with, that if this God sent his son, broke his body and shed his blood so that you would be redeemed, then he'll never leave you. He'll never leave you. Let us pray. God, we are just troubled, forgetful people. And Lord, forgive us where we fall short in trusting your good nature. Lord, I pray that that's just what we would leave here doing. Just trusting that, man, you are a good just mighty God. And you love us. You sent your son for us. And you will never leave us. Lord, I pray that this communion time for for the believers in this room would be a moment to just sit and ponder, as the scripture says, on how mighty you are. And more than anything, you're mighty to save us in eternity, but also in the daily rhythms of life. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Come when you're ready.
Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.